the wellness webinar. Here we go. Stream starting soon. Hold on. I never know where to go. Just wait a minute. He'll tell you. Oh, there it is. Oh, look at this. That's fun. <laughs> hey, that was super fancy with the countdown. Look at that. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to our wellness webinar. Um, joining me today, I'm Elaine Pauly. Joining me today is the wonderful Pat Zemer and the excellent Dr. Myers. And we are going to be talking about all things wellness. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hey, hey. Hi. Hi. So, um, Dr. Myers, where are you today? And oh, first of all, let me say, if you have a question, put it in the comment box. We are going to talk about the coronavirus, obviously, but we're also going to you know, take other questions that you may have. Um, Dr. Myers is our medical director for MagnaWave, so she does understand PMF and can answer really, um, you know, if you have a question that she can answer uh, about PMF and wellness, she'd be happy to take that. But we're going to kick it off with, you know, the current wellness crisis. But where are you right now, um, Dr. Myers? Right now, I'm back in Tampa, Florida, uh, working in the hospital system here again. So I've just been toggling really between here and Ohio for the most part over the last month or two while we've been working with COVID. So. And so you're changing shifts, you said earlier. So you go from like day to night shift. How does that work? You go in. Right. Uh, we work uh, in this facility 12 hour shifts. So like yesterday, I worked 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Today, I will work 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So it's kind of a a game, how to shift your sleeping pattern where you can sleep in the day and, and work all night. Uh, it it's, can be tricky sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I appreciate you being on here with us. So, um, you know, dad, I think we talked about this a little bit the other day. And I think this is, this is as a mother, this is the first question I want to talk about is um, they've had five deaths as of yesterday. I haven't checked today in New York City from children that had COVID-19 um, recovered, but then got sick. Um, and they are calling an inflammation around the heart. Um, I didn't get to learn. I don't understand exactly what's happening. Have you heard anything of this? You you do work with with children. So tell me what you know about this and how, how that's you know playing out. So this is a new finding that we're seeing, a new repercussion, I guess, of COVID. And again, you know, we're learning things weekly. This uh, novel virus is showing us new tricks and uh, things that are occurring and changing and shifting in it, uh, it seems almost on a weekly level. Uh, and right now, what we thought was a relatively benign process in the pediatric population, the younger crowd, uh, is changing. We're seeing in Europe and in the hot spots, the high incidence population areas where we've seen lots of positive COVID cases, the children are now showing us inflammation in their vessels, in their blood vessels is really what this is. Um, and it's, it's hard for us to guess. We do see this kind of a pattern in the springtime and in the fall. Um, and it, it's a it's a common pathway from multiple different viruses that can end up irritating the blood vessel surfaces. And because that occurs, the blood vessels weaken and then they will actually balloon like an aneurysm does uh, and they can actually rupture or, or burst open uh, at times. And so, you know, the, the key finding that we're seeing that's concerning is that the area of most impact are the blood vessels of the heart itself. So it's like having a heart attack as an eight-year-old or a five-year-old or a three-year-old uh, is really what happens. And so we, in the spring, see this patterning frequently and, and we call it Kawasaki's disease. And it's a cluster of things that happen that are kind of that end 
patterning of multiple different viruses. So there's not a, a single specific thing that will cause what we call Kawasaki's disease that we have found to date. What we're finding is it's a pathway of irritation, inflammation of vascular structures. And it appears that COVID as a coronavirus does this same thing. So the, the question for us is, is this really that, that sort of normal springtime patterning and it's just being exacerbated because we have such a high incidence of this coronavirus or is it really just that this virus will do this? Yeah. Uh, we just don't know yet. And, and that's the problem. But we're seeing it here in the United States, most specifically in New York. But we also have a, a case report from Europe in London where they're seeing it there as well. So, and a lot of the kids are testing PCR positive, um, but some of them are testing that nasal swab, the PCR negative, but we're finding that they're creating antibodies in their serum. So it's a, it's a blood test and the, the nose test that's telling us that they've been exposed to the virus itself. Yeah, because you don't know. They say with children, it's really hard. You don't, right. you don't know if your kids have been exposed. And then, right. so, I mean, for me, you know, that's frightening for parents. Like, what do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, I've just been magnwaving my kids every day, regardless. Right. It used to be a, a, okay, we do this every other day. This is like, sit down, I'm magnwaving your body and pulling out as much inflammation because I don't know if you've been sick. And it, a lot of times, especially in the younger kids, there's no signs or symptoms. And then right. something like this could pop up that scares parents. So I think right. um, having the most information and, you know, again, a good offense um, is a good defense. So our good defense yeah. is good offense. And, and, I, and I think that's the key, right? If you can stay healthier in your system, if you can eliminate some of the irritation or inflammation or the building of that, because this isn't, this isn't a, a, a speeding train that, that occurs. This is a, you know, this is a slow build into a big problem. So if you can change the steps along the way that create this massive overwhelm, of the, of the vascular system, then you can likely avoid that, that type of a reaction or response from the body itself. So, you know, staying again, as healthy as you can, keeping well hydrated, resting well, you know, eating good food, staying on the vitamin, you know, that, that, and supplements that you feel like are, are helpful for you and your family, you know, pulse electromagnetic fields, vastly important. We know we change blood vessels. We know we change how they heal themselves. We know they change how the stress of the vessel exists. We know that we can change the way that the blood patterning exists. So if we can fortify the vascular system itself, then potentially this, you may change that. Yeah. Across the board, that inflammation, irritation process across the board. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah that, it's, and so it's not a good, it's not a bad thing that you're doing, Elaine. It's very beneficial to, to do that with the kids to try to just make sure they stay healthy. We should all do that. Yeah, I think it's just now I think that it's really important for parents because you don't know. And, and specifically where I am, it's harder to get tests if you don't have any pre-existing conditions. I know some places are different. Like you, you're not going to know if this is your child or not. So if you have access to a magnet, if you have access to PMF, use it. Use it consistently on your children. Use it on yourself. This is the absolute time when you need it. Because I feel like right now um, when we have a health crisis like this, we're scared and we don't know what to do. And, and that's where this could be such a valuable tool because you're fighting off from that ever starting. You're not even letting, if somebody beats COVID and they continue to do these things, you're allowing their body the best chance to fight it. Right. And that I think is the key. You know, again, we don't have medicine to make this virus better. We don't have a treatment program. We will not have a vaccine through the end of this year. Likely if everything moves perfectly and we bend a few of the rules for regulations, we may have it in, in the early spring of next year. And But then the question is, 
how much of it will we actually have and how it will be distributed. Like you can't make 6 billion doses of it. Even once you know it works, it's going to take yeah. time to the availability. Exactly. So in the meantime, your, your best decision is to keep as healthy as you can. And in, in the children population, this coronavirus tends to look just like a common cold. And how many common colds do you see your kid have? How four, much, you know, four every year, four or five a year, constantly. Yeah. Super normal. And these will look, this coronavirus will look exactly the same as every other common cold pattern that your child has ever had. So how do you know it's this virus versus just some other random little, you know, rhinovirus or, or whatever that they're exposed to? So it's challenging to tell it apart. Um, and I think that's what's caught everyone a little off guard uh, in the pediatric population is we kind of sat back and went, oh, we're not seeing you know, the same type of impact factor as a lot of the elderly are or the people who have comorbidities are, we can maybe breathe a little bit better because we, we're always prepared in the pediatric world to expect, anticipate our very young or uh, just like in the older population are chronically ill to have these similar problems. And we just weren't seeing it. And so everyone was like, this is crazy. But now we, you know, I guess we just needed to wait long enough. <laughs> Uh, in order to see this sort of process occur, you know, and again, this this virus is teaching us something new every week, it seems. So uh, it's got an evolution pattern. We still don't know exactly where it's taking us uh, or what to do about it yet. So yeah. we have a question, uh, uh, Dr. Myers. It says there has been talk about strokes in some COVID positive adults. Yes. And then they go on to say, is, is this how it might present itself in children? Um, I don't necessarily see strokes in children, but it's certainly what about strokes in adults? Um, we do see some strokes in adults, and that's, it's, that's one of the things that we are learning is that this virus, the lung problem this virus is creating, the reason people are having harder times breathing, needing oxygen, needing to be intubated, and in critical care settings, we don't think it's because the tissue itself is, is becoming thick or irritated and inflamed. We actually, that's part of the picture, but the other maybe bigger part of it is that the blood vessels themselves are clotting and having problems. And that is what we call a stroke. It's when blood thickens, it doesn't move smoothly through uh, the, the vascular structure. So it's sort of like getting a clog in your drain. You know, is that clog still thick enough and big enough that it obstructs flow so your sink doesn't drain as quickly, but it still drains? Uh, or is it one that's just going to stop flow altogether? And and strokes work like that. So if we clot an area, can we still get blood flow around it and have the tissue pass the clot survive? Or does it totally obstruct that space and that tissue then does not get oxygen and then begins to deteriorate and then become a, a cell structure that ruptures and, and we see the impact factor of that, whatever that area is that's not getting blood flow. And if that's in brain tissue, then we start to speak differently, we start to move differently, we begin to paralyze different components of the body, arms, legs, faces, that type of thing. So, you know, and we are seeing that happen. And we're seeing it also not just in the elderly, but in shockingly and scarily in some of the younger 20, 30, 40 age ranges as well. And we don't know why. Um, and that's, I think, what makes this virus still so, from a medical provider perspective, frightening. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not that we can't predict some of this sort of averages. We can predict a lot of the averages, the means of this thing. It's the variance that we can't predict, the randomness of some of the impact factors. So actually, it's kind of like a, a, a quadruple uh, rollu that, that occurs in the blood, causing it to clot easily and, and thicken 
and and not flow properly, which would be a reason right. to be use MagnaWave is to keep the blood flow moving smoothly uh, through the body or anything else that someone can do to improve their blood right. flow and blood circulation. Yeah, because as as cells become damaged or infected, they begin to change their polarity. And red blood cells specifically, if they don't keep a negative charge around the surface of the cell itself, then they begin to stick together. We want them to work like magnets that have opposite ends. We want them to kind of bounce off of each other all the time. But if their polarity changes, they stick together. And then all of a sudden you get clump, 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 clump. Then this big mass that then can't fit through a narrow tunnel. So uh, th this is amazing because I get this question a lot. When that is happening, mm -hmm. does PMF change the polarity of a cell? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, but it'll change it benefit. Like, could it change it to the wrong polarity? How does that work? It won't change it to the, the wrong polarity because the magnetics are, it's just the way the magnetic field is structured. So it will begin to take uh, and orient sort of the positive and the negative charges. It's, it's, it's just physics. Like, I don't know how to, we could get into quantums, but uh, no, and build and string theory, but it, yeah, I think it may deep dive a little bit. Um, but, but it, it doesn't change incorrectly. Like that's not the way we're set up. We are in, we are on a planet that has a gravitational field. Our planet orbits very specifically in our sort of sphere. We're not willy nilly. We don't just like ping pong around. We are in a very specific and unique orientation that we're spinning in. Our planet itself spins in a very unique way. So the poles are, they're permanent for right now. Now there's some chatter and theories that maybe we're gonna flip our poles, but that has not happened yet. So right now we have a North pole, we have a South pole. Our earth spins on those. Uh, and then our Earth gravitates around our sun and our moons because of the way that we're held into space. And that doesn't change. And our cells don't change. So if you expose yourselves to the magnetic field, it will be the correct field because that's what we're creating. Because in pulsed electromagnetic therapies, we're utilizing our Schumann resonance. That right. is our field. That's yes. what we create. And so there's no way that we're going to incorrectly polarize something. Yeah, I think there's some misunderstanding. People think that, oh, what is the polarity of your machine? And what? And I, I try to explain to them, it's not. There aren't magnets in there that are positive or negative. It's about right. the magnetic field, and that's hard for people. Correct. Um, we did get a question. Does a personal ox oximeter at home help in monitoring health? I know how to say that word, but I cannot say it right now. But, it, you know, one of the things that goes on your fingers that monitor yeah. is not what we're looking for. Yeah. There, I mean, you can buy a commercial pulse oximeter. Walgreens and CVS's and pharmacies, Kroger's or wherever you are, you know, you can buy them um, and they do. They're a little clip that commonly it just fits right on top of your finger and it is reading through an infrared beam what the oxygenation is in your fingertip. And that's usually where they want you to place them. You can put them on earlobes, you can put them on toes, you can put it on your nose, all kinds of places for it to go. If your hand is cold, if you have poor vascular uh, you know, some sort of disease process that changes blood flow, you may not get an accurate number, um, but they're commonly pretty decently accurate. And, you know, we like you in the 90s. We don't really care where you are in the 90s because in that sense, you're oxygenating well. You can't get better than 100. So we don't like you to be in the 80s. Uh, that tends to say we're having a problem. If you drop into the 70s, we get interested. If you drop into the 60s, we're going to start intubating you. So those are kind of rough numbers of normal and not normal uh, deals. And 
the the only the only reason that you you know it might be interesting is if you are sick with COVID and you begin to have that tight short of breath feeling in your chest you feel like you're not moving your air well enough it may help you decide when did you want to go to a facility and get help that would be the reason that you would want that but if you can take a deep breath and blow it out and you can do that 10 times in a row or you can sing a chorus of your favorite song or you can talk in a full complete sentence you know then those are probably indicators that you're still breathing well enough um, but you know there's a, there's a point where that will change and the question is how comfortable are you uh, with where your breathing pattern is. So I go get an oximeter, I manually myself, and then I'm going to see the differences. Would that be something you could actually see through something like that, like quickly, or would it take time? I mean, you you would change quickly, but you know, most of us, if you don't have a lung pathology, your oxygen is like 95, 98%, and it changes more based on your breathing pattern. So if I take a really good deep breath, my oxygen will go up to 100. If I breathe quiet and shallow, my oxygen will drop down, drift down into like 94, 93 kind of age. If I'm just sitting on my couch watching television and I don't move for 10 minutes, it's going to drift down. But if I get up and I walk to my kitchen, it's going to go up. Like these are these numbers fluctuate dramatically based on what we're doing from a from a deep or shallow breathing pattern and how fast we're doing it. So you're going to see those changes more based on what you do almost if you're a healthy person. Now, if you're if you're a sick person that has more of a challenging problem, a pneumonia or something that's going on, then those numbers don't fluctuate quite as dramatically. They'll be exactly. a little more. Sick. And so we watch them carefully in the hospital when you're sick, because we need to know that you're staying in a in a range that's acceptable. So because you're not getting up and running around the house. You're laying exactly. In the bed. No, you're not. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So to answer your question, Janet, she asked about having one of those at home. Like, yes, it would be helpful if you do get sick. Uh, but otherwise, monitoring that, um, it's not going to determine whether you're getting sick or not getting sick. You would know way in advance okay. if you were getting sick. That's correct. Yeah. OK. We have another question, uh, Aaron. I'm sure someone asked it of Aaron. Speaking of blood clots, is it OK to magnawave a person who has an existing blood clot? So... I have some thoughts there as well, but go ahead, doc. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, if you have an existing blood clot, you're going to be on a blood thinner management protocol. You're going to be taking a medicine in order to help dissolve that clot. Um, and the the research that's been done in PEMF will tell you that it the treating it with a magnetic field will help dissolve that clot faster. Um, because you are changing polarity, because you're changing cell structures, that will occur. The, I think the concern on any level at any point when you have a blood clot is will you chunk a piece of that clot off that doesn't totally dissolve, that stays a little clot, and will that clot move someplace else? Um, and would it ever then get to a small enough vascular structure where it would then get stuck and act like a new clot in that space? Um, and so, you know, I think the, the risk is there because you've got the clot already. So, but dissolving the clot as quickly as you can would be a, a good decision. And so combining treatment with MagnaWave would be reasonable, provided you've talked to your doctor about that. Yeah, under the doctor's care. Yeah, it's got to be under your, your doctor has to know you're doing it. Um, they have to be able to talk with you about it and decide whether they feel comfortable or not with that. Yeah. Um, we know you can't even run, right? I mean, there's restrictions when you have a blood clot, like you're not even supposed Correct. to run or walk long distances and Correct. do stuff without, you know, the express permission of your doctor. So, I mean, I think that that makes sense. Don't you, Dad? 
Well, and, and it comes down, we've had this conversation a million times over the years because somebody always says the next question that they would make to uh, Dr. Amanda would be, well, I've got blood clots on my leg and they're there. They're, they're stationary, they're there, and the doc knows they're there. Uh, can I treat? And I think going along with what she's saying, if, if, if they're going to allow you to go out and walk and maybe even jog, if you've got those clots, they're not concerned about them going anywhere. Now, my recommendation has always been, don't treat that space on their leg, treat their low back or treat their ankle or whatever they're doing. But again, always make sure that the doctor's involved with the conversation and what's going on. But that's where it always goes. Cause there's, I have a good friend that's got that uh, Phil in, in, in Evansville, he's got some clots in his leg and they're just there. And so he's always been somewhat worried about, he's on thinners as well, but they're just, I guess you'd say they're stuck. And, and uh, so he's allowed to do things. Yeah, I try to keep it that if any time somebody asks me, if you're not supposed to run or walk, if you're not supposed to be doing exercise, then you really shouldn't be magnet waving. Because I think in that sense, in that instance, that's something unless your doctor tells you to, because I I don't know. And even Dr. Myers, you wouldn't know what situation they were in. I mean, if there's no if you're not supposed to be running or walking, then then you shouldn't use um, any type of pulse electromagnetic fields. But if you are able to freely do those things, and most of the time it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, blood clots are always interesting, and, and they're common in the lower legs, uh, but they can occur almost anywhere. So, you know, again, engaging your physician and just saying, you know, we're, we're talking about doing this as a modality. Um, you know, are you comfortable with me adding this in? Because we know that the clot is present. We know we're going to dissolve it with the medicine. We know part of it's going to probably chunk off and move someplace else. So we're taking that risk, which is why they don't want you to be really active because it may, it may cause a piece of that to dislodge and move. That's why they don't want you to be active while they're trying to thin this thing down right. and solve it. So, but in, you know, anytime you add a new therapy into your world that you're currently under supervision for from a physician for another reason, you should talk to them about it. I don't care what it is. PMF, yep. I don't care if you add vitamins, I don't care if you start adding a food group. There are so many ways that, that our world interacts with medicine that it's always smart to engage your physician to say, hey, look, I'm adding this in. Do you think that's a problem or not a problem? You know? Yep. I agree. I completely agree. Um, again, if you have any question, please put them in the comment box. We would ha be happy to answer them for you. Um, so it, with, with COVID-19, what are you seeing in the hospitals right now? What is it like for you at work? You know, we see a lot of stuff on the news where it's, you know, crazy and that they're not getting the PPE. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the PPE has been a big concern. Um, and part of it has just been a shift in our thought about some of the, the products that we have been using. There's certainly been a, sh a shortage. Everyone is concerned about it. Every hospital that I go to is counting the numbers of products that they have, face masks, face shields, goggles, you know, gowns, the things that we're trying to, to, to be able to utilize. And they're, they're all trying, every hospital is trying to decide, do we have enough to continue to protect the staff for the volume of patient base that we have right now? And potentially as we reopen and we begin to do some of our elective processes again, could we sustain that as well? And so there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a numbers game right now that everybody is sort of paying focused attention to. Um, and in places that weren't overwhelmed, you know, we've been able to steadily have available to us these products. In places like New York, where it was just such a huge peak of incidents all at one time, you know, those places were running out uh, of what they needed to help protect their workers. 
Um, and so I feel like, you know, it's, it's been a huge concern and particularly for someone on the front line, I know I'm in the faces of patients who are COVID positive. I don't want to bring that back home to my family or to the people that I quarantine with when I am not at work. Um, so, you know, it's, it's raised a level of stress for, I think, all of us in the healthcare profession. Um, we've added layer after layer after layer of things to protect ourselves as we go to work. So every time I'm going in and out of a patient room, there's a whole process of getting ready to get into the room. And then how do you decontaminate after you've been in the patient's room? So, you know, the, the whole, there's just a lot of tension, I think, from that perspective on how to stay healthy, how to, how to create your own personal structure or strategy to keep safe. Um, and for many reasons, not just for my own personal health, but because I don't want to get the next patient that I see, you know, connected to the patient I saw before, uh, that I don't want to take that home uh, as well. So I think all of us are, are kind of dealing with it in our own ways. You know, I think a lot of us have extended our own personal sort of care because we need to uh, in these sort of stressful times. So it, it's been challenging, I think. No, I understand. Ted, do you have any questions for Dr. How do you, uh, and of course this is all over the board, I saw a video just earlier this afternoon, a woman from Texas, a doctor from Texas, talking about the, the the different medications and so forth. But the opening up, you know, there's this big fear that if we open up, uh, we're going to allow it to spread uh, even more or even faster. And then they start talking about the infection rates and the death rates, uh, how much that will change, even if there's they're saying there's a lot more people infected than we have any clue to begin with anyway. Uh, where, where, are you, where are your thoughts on that? I mean, so we have we have created a test that can tell us decently accurately whether you are positive or negative for this virus, right? That was our first step. We have 330 million people in the United States. We've done 6 million tests. So we are not even testing 10% of our population at this point in the game. We've heavily tested in population areas that are sick currently, like New York. New York, we've tested a million people. There, you know, one-sixth of our testing have been in that location itself, period. Um, and so when we, when we try to guess how many people have had this or not, we have no idea. So the real question right now is how many people have already had this, have survived through this and have antibodies to it now. Uh, and so the big push currently has been antibody testing. Could I get blood from you, uh, in order to tell me whether you've been exposed to the virus, whether you're actively sick with it right now, but not symptomatic, or you are symptomatic, one of the two. Or have you seen it in the past and you're recovered from it and have immunity for it? Uh, but again, that's a test that will take time to develop accurately. There, there were like 30 or 40, pro no, actually about 50 products on the market. 25 of them have been pulled off because they were not claiming correctly what they could do. Um, so we're struggling getting a good antibody test that would be something that will help us know what's going on. And in the medical field, we're concerned because we know if we reopen, the only reason our curve flattened, the only reason that we didn't overwhelm our entire medical system, just like we overwhelmed New York, was because everyone stayed home and isolated. That's it. That's the only reason. So if we reopen and everybody goes back to the movie theater and the restaurant and to the hair salon and runs around in big groups, we will see more people sick, period. We will. And the question is how many of them will die? And we are actively in conversation across America right now of kind of what's that acceptable number of death. We know this is a pandemic. We know it isn't gone. We know we're going to continue to struggle with it. We know it will likely come back this next winter. We are not done with this at all by any stretch of the imagination. So how many people are we okay letting die because we all go back out and do our worlds? And, and from a medical professional's you know, 
viewpoint, we're worried because we've seen what this does personal, up close, you know. We, we see people die daily, uh, whereas a lot of people in the United States have not even seen someone sick. And so this is just a very different, you know, sort of approach. The economy is important. It has to run. Like, I, I get the, the balance of what's going on in this conversation. It's not like we can just ignore uh, where we are from a financials perspective. You know, the government is handing out money to lots and lots and lots of entities to try to bridge through this process, which is, you know, certainly valuable and important. The, the question is just, if we get back together, how many people will get sick? How many of them will have a problem? How many of that problem group will actually die? And we don't know. Uh, we think it's going to look a lot like it has in this first wave before we self-isolated. And those were big numbers. 80,000 yeah. That's a lot of people. Are we, are we okay with that? I mean, that's, that's the question that everyone is struggling with. Okay. Hey, we are okay with a number of every year from the flu that we deal with. Exactly. But we have to come to that, to that understanding. Were you going to read the question, Elaine? Yeah, well, I do. And I want to add to that. I mean, yeah, we understand the number from the flu, but we're adding 80,000 deaths on top of the number of people that died from the flu. So we are doubling the amount of deaths in the United States from sickness and in the world. So it's not just, you know, it, it adds a totally different component there. Um, LTC Magnawave Services asks, one of the contra contradictory arguments is that immunity comes from exposure. How does that factor in with COVID? Right. And that, so that's the counter argument, right? If we don't get back out, if we don't reopen, if we don't re-expose, how do we build what everyone is talking about, herd immunity? How do we get to where we are with the flu, right? That's why we're okay with the flu. The flu, we've all seen year after year after year, whether you get sick or not get sick or sick on a level that matters, you know, we're all exposed to it. And so our bodies are building a level of intelligence about the flu back uh, the virus itself and is capable of helping our bodies sustain and survive through any sort of infection that we get on the average right so when we look at how many die from the flu versus how many are dying from covid those numbers are very different the percents are very different and the reason we've got different patterns with flu is because we've seen it multiple seasons in a row number one and number two we vaccinate against it so we're getting a passive immunity from protective vaccines versus an active immunity when you're exposed personally. So the combination of active and passive immunity creates a sustainable sort of level of, yes, we are okay, continuing to do everything we do normally, uh, no matter what is going on with, with the flu outbreak at that time. We just don't know what this, this, this COVID-19 virus is going to do because no one's seen it before. We're going to have a higher incidence of death. Next winter, if we see this again, and I think we will, that instance will probably be smaller, but we're still going to see heavy numbers of mortality from it until we get up an immunization pattern that helps protect us passively, until we see this season after season after season and build active immunity against it. This is going to be a continued conversation because our death toll will be high. So it's not like we can just open up at 30, like everything's back to normal and all these people get sick and die and then we're all going to be fine. Herd no. immunity doesn't work like that. It takes, no. it takes multiple seasons is basically what you're saying. Correct. And it, and it is the same every season. So even with the flu, we are concerned about people who have multiple medical problems. We're concerned about the very young. We're concerned about the very old. They're the ones who end up succumbing to the flu every single season. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and we feel like, again, COVID fits that pattern. We just haven't seen enough of it to be strong enough to fight against it. And, and the real question is the flu shifts a little bit every year. That it, it's evolving. The virus is changing. And so we have to build a different vaccine every single season. It's not the same, the same entity. And we, what we don't know is whether COVID is going to do the same thing. Is it going to stay a static virus? 
without changing any of its surface components, any of the proteins or the sort of expressed things that are on the surface of this virus, we don't think that's going to happen. We think it's going to behave a whole lot like the other viruses that we see, and it's going to shapeshift a little bit every year. And that's why just this season isn't going to be enough. We're going to have to have multiple seasons of exposures before we're going to be protected in a, in a herd immunity fashion. Larry makes a comment. It says it should be up to the individual. I'm sure that's about going out and, and how they protect themselves or so forth. And I just wanted to make a comment to that. One of the issues with COVID as opposed to the flu is with the flu, you got typically a two to five day uh, incubation period. And so I, I'm exposed, I get sick pretty quick. So I know I'm sick, I stay in. But with COVID, you're talking a five to a 14 day incubation period. So I could be walking around for 14 days. That's where the 14 number comes from, exposing people before I get sick to where I stay in. That's yeah. a challenge. And, and that's where we need to be protective of other people that we yeah. could in fact be carriers and, and not know it. Right. Yeah. And, and I I think that's where the mask conversation fits in. You know, if you will wear a mask in public to help prevent spread of your talking, you know, particulate matter that comes out, coughs or sneezes, if you can not wipe your face and then touch something else that someone else may come into contact with and touch, you know, the spread is where we're trying to maybe mitigate. And, and we're going to say, yes, if you're going to reopen areas, wear masks. Yes, if we reopen areas, continue to do that minimum of a six feet difference, you know, of, of, of distance between you and the next person in order to be you know, just conscientious of if you do have that exposure and are unaware of it to not spread further into other people uh, from that perspective. So, you know, a lot of the strategies that are being employed right now are Restaurants opening at 25%, so they're distancing tables that are being seated. You know, movies, movie theaters that are that are changing spacing in, in the seating that is being offered. You know, so so we can mitigate some of these things uh, just by social distancing on a on a reasonable way. But we've got to stay focused on that. You know, I, I I think some of the fear is that people get out there and they're like, oh yeah, it's 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 like normal. I can just do whatever I want. You know, and and not wear the mask and not social distance, and then. You know, I feel like from a medical professional's perspective, that's what we're worried about. If you don't continue to do your personal individual part, you know, how many people will get sick? And out of that sick, how many people will actually have a problem uh, and potentially not survive? Tracy asked a question, and, and this was talked about. I want to try to clarify this a little bit. Earlier in the, in the quarantine time, uh, there were some stories and reports that the coronavirus virus that we have in Kentucky is a little different than what's going on in New York because it's mutating. And it, it, if it does continue to mutate, how do they come up with a reliable vaccine, reliable vaccine? But in, from, from where you are today, Dr. Amanda, do you see it mutated in various markets or is it pretty much the same? So we know the virus is mutating and it's mutated into two kind of really distinct strains, uh, one of which is more virulent. And so it, that means that it's more contagious. Uh, so it's more easily spread, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a way that the virus has become smarter about how to enter the host cell uh, and begin its replication process. And that's the tricky part. That's where the vaccines become so very complicated is that trying to find a stable component on the surface of the virus that does not change or changes so minimally that we can still target it. And that's where, you know, there's like a hundred different groups looking at viral processes. I think there are eight of them that are right now in clinical trials. Um, and that's a very rapid and early sort of process on a virus that we know is still evolving. 
So the the virus in New York versus the virus in you know small rural town somewhere else is probably a little bit different. Clinically, it will not be different. Clinically, it's not going to behave a ton different in you. Your symptoms are going to look exactly like those symptoms that are happening in New York City. So that the the part of the virus that is actually creating the symptoms is still going to look very similar. The the differences in those proteins and those mutations are how do we target it? How do we get a medicine that works against it? And how do we develop a vaccine that's stable? So what you just what you just said, if I can get it right, is that the the problem part of the virus is pretty much the same. How it gets into your body may vary. So to find the vas- vaccination that fights the problem part can be pretty universal. Is that correct? Yes. So I mean, all, you, if you've seen any of the graphics on you know the web or so forth, they've got a, a ball that has little spikes or little pieces that stick yeah. off of the surface of the ball, right? So we're looking at the surface structure of this vaccine, or the, the virus, in order to create a vaccine. And what I need is a stable piece that stays on the surface of that virus that doesn't change. I don't need it to look like my index finger one day and my pinky finger the next day and then my thumb on the third day. Like, that's not what I want. What I want is something that doesn't shift, doesn't change. It stays just like my index finger the entire time that I'm looking at it. That's how we create a vaccine. I target this one thing. I don't target everything else on the surface. But if this thing shrinks a little bit, that's different, right? If it starts to look like my thumb instead, now it's different and I can't target it anymore. If it starts to look like my pinky finger, totally different thing. Like they're similar, but they're different. So if I target a surface space like that and that that surface space shifts, now my vaccine is ineffective. So that's that's flu A and flu B, correct? So a little bit, yeah. So the flu viruses have two different proteins on the surface, and we are targeting those proteins every season in order to make our vaccines. And we we trend the entire southern hemisphere's flu season to find the three most prevalent flus, and that's what we make our vaccine against. And what we're hoping is that by the time it 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 flips up to us in the United States in our in our winter time in the northern hemisphere, we hope that it hasn't shape shifted. We hope that it hasn't decided to you wow. know cut its hair off and be bald or to grow a, a goatee or to gain 15 pounds. Get right? a beard like Pat. Right? Or, or, or instead of wearing contacts, we wear glasses now. Like we don't want to change this thing enough that all of a sudden we can't recognize it. That's the problem. Um, and so every season our flu vaccine is variably effective depending on how much the virus has changed by the time it shifts from the, the Southern hemisphere up to the Northern hemisphere. So we're, we're dealing with the same situation with this virus. It is changing. We know it's changing. We're, we're watching that trend change. What we need to know is what isn't changing on the surface as we've moved forward and can we target it and will it stay stable? And the problem is, is we have like four months of experience with this thing, which is evolving. So finding a stable structure on the protein surface is challenging. Thinking that it's gonna be stable through January or February when we might have a vaccine developed that we can then mass produce and then provide to everyone in the summer, which is the likely story, you know, next fall, expecting this virus to not change that much in 18 months. Ah, that's the big, that's the big trick, right? So that's the challenge of developing a vaccine and a vaccine that's effective. So basically, go on, Dad. No, no, go ahead. 
So basically what you're saying is that you just need to stay healthy. We all yep. need to stay oh, as yeah. healthy as absolute possible because even if you get it right now, let's say you get it and then you get better or you had it, you get tested and you've had it or you have the, you have what, you know, the, the proper um, immunity, then you could still get it again in two years. You could still Absolutely. get it again in three years. You could still get it in six months. So the important thing is even if you've had it, it's, you're, you're, it's not over for you. Like you're never going to get it again. Well, so change yeah larry makes the comment okay yeah larry makes the comment that you know we get flu shots and we still get another form of flu or we right. can go a year and still and and have had a shot and still catch this virus because right. it's changing that is correct but we just you know defense is better than no no defense yeah. and, and and moving forward i mean i'm in in my household we've had occasions where debbie and i get our flu shots more times than not she's gotten a flu shot and gotten sick yeah then where i get a flu shot and it and it hasn't affected yeah. me so that's that's always an option no matter what and i guess that's a chance we take and people are going to make that decision and we understand right and and that's the difference in your own physicality right so if your body is engaged or has a memory that's a little bit stronger than someone else's memory then you like pat you're not getting sick I'll, whereas Didi, who may have a different uh, pattern of immunization in her system, a different memory sort of core in her in her body, then this may be a new thing for her, and she might get sick. And that's that's the variance, and that's what worries us about this coronavirus, is the variance, the the mean we can kind of predict, right? The averages we can predict, but those outliers. Why are these particular subset of kids getting this problem? Why are we finding stroke in twenty and thirty year olds when the average twenty and thirty year old is recovering without a problem at all? What is the difference in the person who has high blood pressure, high, you know, and, and diabetes, but never has a problem with this, and the person who ends up on the intubation cycle and then dies? Yeah, the variance is what is value is is the value of of where Wait. we are and the scariness of where we are. Now, is it blood type? I've heard a lot of talk about blood type. Like, could that matter? Is that, have you heard anything about that in your like where you're working, where like certain blood types have a different um, experience with this? I mean, I, blood types are always an interesting conversation because it's about protein in your body, right? Our blood cells are covered with specific proteins or not covered. Like the O blood type has no protein on its surface. The A has an A protein, the B has a B protein. And then there are lots of other subcategories of things on the cell surfaces that make us type them um, in, into specific categories. And the, the blood conversation is always intriguing because you know, food groups specifically, are you taking a, a type of protein that interacts well with your body protein as a as a good food or does it negatively impact you as a bad food? Why is it that one diet does not work for everyone? It's always a, a fascinating conversation and question. Um, yeah. there, there's a good conversation with immunizations of whether or not specific blood types interact poorly with immunizations versus others that seem to do fine for that. What we what we don't know is whether or not this virus in, it behaves differently with a blood type specifically. We don't know that yet. Okay. Uh, but is it part of the deal? Probably. Uh, it, it's a possibility because our physiology matters and our physiology is what predicts our health on, on many levels. You know, the, why is this killing more men than women? Same numbers of men and women getting sick, but more men die. Why? Well, women are stronger. I could just answer, <laughs> I just answer that question right now. I mean, we have children. We're stronger. I'm sorry. Just... <laughs> It's just the truth. It's just it, it could be the truth. So there's a lot of interest though, you know, like in our chromosomes specifically at a core. You know, it does it, it do two X chromosomes, the female group, give you a better protection factor. Is it the androgen that the Y, you know, chromosome creates that makes you a male? Is too much androgen a problem? There's a really interesting study uh in Italy wow. about 
men with prostate cancer and they have treated some men with androgen suppression in order or decreasing their androgen levels in order to treat their prostate cancer. Those men got sick, fewer of them became sick and fewer of them died than the men that weren't having androgen suppression for their treatments with COVID. So is it androgen suppression that matters? Or is it that we need estrogen? There's a, there's a study group in Seattle right now that's putting on an estrogen like a birth control patch uh, that you can put on a skin surface and does the estrogen protect you from, you know, the actual COVID virus? So it, now, it's, a, it's a very interesting conversation that we don't have answers to yet. So you see, here's the answer. Larry says women are stronger. Elaine says women are stronger. And that's why I'm protected right now because I'm sitting between two <laughs> very fine women. <laughs> yeah, Didi's there too. And we know that she's- here. She's protecting me from the back. Yeah. <laughs> You're surrounded. <laughs> That's right. uh, again, if you have any questions, we're going to wrap up here shortly. So if you have any questions, please put them in the comment box. Uh, do you have anything that you want to add, Dad? No, I'm good. I think it's one other thing that I was going to say, and, and Dr. Amanda touched on it. And of course, we talk about it a lot in with MagnaWave PEMF when you talk about the muscle, the muscle memory and the cellular memory. And, and people wrestle with that, that our cells actually have memory of what's been going on in the area where they are and they react accordingly. And just as an example, and then I'll let Dr. Amanda respond. Uh, it, with an animal, if you treat it and it feels better, but when it starts to walk, it, it remembers in its cells that it's sore. And so it will walk sore for a period of time till all of a sudden the cells say, I'm not sore, I'm okay. So then they can use their muscles appropriately and the soreness basically disappears. And, and so what cellular memory is something that a lot of folks struggle with, but yet it's something that's here. And I'm, I'm guessing what you're talking about, Dr. Amanda, is that Quite often your cells, your immune system, your cells are thinking they're weak and something gets in and they allow it to take over or that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So our body does create a memory and it's, it's sort of like what we do. If I, I wear glasses, when I lay down, I put my glasses, I take them off and I put them in the same location. If, and so when I wake up, I pick them up and I put them on. Um, if I change the location of my glasses though, how many days does it take me to not reach over and try to find my glasses in their old location, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pattern, it's a habit. Uh, and, and all of our cells are built that way. So sick cells do take a recovery period in order to, you know, honestly release that phenomenon uh, of, of patterning that they were in previously. And they, and they will feel a little bit sore and they will, you know, as that edema decreases because they work better, uh, or that irritation decreases because they're working better, then that resolves over that time frame. Uh, and we, we always say that if you do an, a pulse electromagnetic uh, treatment, that you're going to feel a, a detoxing, right? You're going to have a period of time where your cells actually are getting rid of the things that were stacked up and, you know, couldn't be processed because it was too toxic to be processed. You're going to phase through that until you get into normal function. Uh, and then your body is going to maintain that normal function uh, across the time and, and you have a memory of the bad, but it dissolves and then you move into a, a normal functioning pattern from that perspective. So yeah, we, yeah everywhere. Yeah, I, I think that we see that a lot. People don't realize the detox effect is actually a good thing where I talk right. to people and they're like, oh, I got sick or I had diarrhea or my stomach hurt for a minute. And I'm right. like, yeah, that's that means it's working. That right. means that what's happening to you is working. It's not gonna happen to everybody. 
But when, if it does happen to you, and I think that that's the power behind being educated in this, mm -hmm. and you're using a magnetic field, you're using PMF or magnet wave, and you know how to tell somebody before a wellness session right. what's happening, that this may be something that they see, mm -hmm. they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna address the experience totally different. I think that's critical for people to, to talk about in front of it, because it's not always that you're going to have something, a dumping of some kind, like a diarrhea or a sweat or a redness on the skin surface. Our skin surface is actually one of the major places that we detox, uh, which is why it's so critical what you're putting on your skin, exposing your skin to sunlight. Uh, those types of things are, are incredibly valuable for your body processing across the board. Um, but talking about it, because it's not always that you're going to find that dumping scenario going on. Um, but a lot of people are just tired. Like all of a sudden there's this weight that the stress level sort of a process on the cellular level that's being minimized and your body just goes, man, I've got to rest. Like this is, I need to actively change where I am and, and, and our healing phase, our recovery phase for our body is during sleep. So, you know, don't be super, you're going to feel better after your treatments commonly, but don't go run around and do a 99,000 things on your list. Just rest, like do something yeah. meditative and mindful or nap, you know, whatever that is for you. Hydrate well, because your body is supposed to be 80% water at a minimum. And none of us are probably there for that. So even though if we drink water all day long, our chemistry is constantly dissolving the water that we require. So you've got to maintain good hydration. And sometimes if you're a practitioner, it's as simple as saying, you know, th th these are the things we expect afterwards. You're going to be a little tired. You may have some little discomfort while your body gets rid of the the stuff that it's been not being able to handle because it wasn't prepared to handle it yet. It wasn't supported in a way that it could handle it yet. So you may feel cranky or sore, or you may have some dumping, sweating, you know, flushing, that type of stuff. And drink water. Here's a water right now. Drink one while we're doing this. Yeah. And and so and water's cheap. I mean, you, you can get it anywhere for low, low, low cash points. So you know, at least I think still. So it's one, not one of the hoarded items. I'm not, I don't believe it right now. So... <laughs> But just reminding, you know, your client that that's sort of the process that will happen. I mean, I know when I when I magnawave after, you know, changing my circadian rhythm twice in a week and flipping from a day pattern to a night pattern and then back again, I magnawave and I'm exhausted, you know. So I, I rest, but I rest really well and I recover so much faster after I do that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important too to know how you're going to react because that after that first treatment, some people are have more energy and some yeah. people have less energy. And some people, depending on where you are, you might have more energy the first time and then you get a treatment a few months later and you have less energy because of where your body is at that moment. So I think that's important to just know that it's working. So this is great information. Uh, do you have, does anybody, you have anything else you want to close with? We have a question here on CastBox. How many liters of water a man should drink once a day or how many liters of water should a person drink once a day? We, you know, as a, as a rough estimate, I would say that if you weighed yourself on a scale, that's how many ounces a day you should drink. And that's a person that's not super active. So if I weigh 120 pounds on the scale, I, I need 120 ounces to maintain normal physiology. But if I'm going to go jog uh, or if I am, am running around with my kids and chasing them or I've got something that I do at work that's active, I lift boxes and move things a lot. Um, then commonly we're looking at time and a half that or double that, depending on what your real activity level is. And if that activity is outdoor, where you're going to experience a, a heat factor that is different than an inside sort of climate controlled space. So, so you should drink your weight mm -hmm. ounces once or twice a day. You should drink. Well, so if I weighed 120 pounds, 120 pounds, 120 ounces through the day. Right. And if you think about that, 
you know, if you pick your average water bottle size or, you know, the, the classic adage in medicine has been, you know, six eight ounce glasses or eight six ounce glasses of water a day, right? So, uh, which is a rough and loose term. Uh, to me, I feel like it's maybe a little bit more appropriate to weight base it. Uh, because we all weigh a little bit differently. If I if I asked a, a guy to drink that, that might be less than he needed if he is six foot two and two hundred pounds versus you know somebody who is five foot five and and, uh, and ninety eight pounds. You know, so it, look, adjusting it based on your your body mass is valuable. Uh, so a, a loose estimate, a rough estimate, a target for your day, your body uh, weight in ounces through the day period. And don't drink it all at one time. You'll just dump it. Your kidney will be like, whoa, way too much water. Uh, and you'll end up in the bathroom for hours. Uh, so spread it out, spread it out fairly evenly. So, so Maria thought it was half of your weight in ounces. And I'm sure there are people that say that, but it's a good rule of thumb. It's very easy uh, to say, whatever your weight is, drink that much throughout the day. I try to at least, I mean, that's-, that's too try, much. Trying to give my kids water is my heart. It's, I, it's, like I, my son, and he continues to go to the sink and chug water. Like, I'm like, if you're a chugging water person, you are already dehydrated. Like you should not be like, I'm, I, I, I have, and Stephanie can attest to this and Chris can attest to this. I have, I have bought them so many water bottles. It is insane. And, and to get them to continuously drink them is my problem. But I have noticed the more that I, I do MagnaWave them, um, he seems to feel better and he drinks more water. I, I think it's also helped me with calming him down a little bit oh, yeah. um, in school because I've noticed with, I'm a teacher and a president of a company and it is a lot. And so what I've realized is that keeping him focused and calm and drinking his water is so important at the age of nine. And so I've been treating him in the morning where I usually treat him in the evening. Oh, yeah. um, I'm treating him in the morning and it's really been amazing to me to see the difference in his behavior throughout the day. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, thirst is a, it's a warning mechanism. It is, we are, it's kind of like your gas tank light coming on. You have like three gallons. Don't go very far, like find a gas station and get gas. That is thirst for our body system. We are low. We're depleted low. You need to do something about it right now. So, and a lot of us drink thirsty and we don't think about it. Right. Or we are thirsty uh, and we eat instead. So we're not sort of maintaining an, uh, an appropriate level of water in the body in and of itself. And all of the chemistry in the body, every single mechanism requires a water component to really work effectively. It's a cooling down process uh, for uh, the body itself, but it's involved in so many of our chemistry reactions that it's just, you can burn through water faster than I think anyone really realizes. And as you hydrate well enough, you begin to feel so much better. Yeah. Uh, your chemistry is not acidic. As your chemistry becomes more alkaline, your thought processes change. So the whole body works more efficiently and effectively. You're calmer. Uh, it's cleaner. Your focus changes. Like the whole thing sets up differently. Yeah. I sit him down in the morning. I give him a treatment and we ha he, ha he drinks his water and has his breakfast. And I let him finish his whole glass of water. And I feel like, I don't know this. I'm not telling him, but I put the water bottle there while they're doing schoolwork. And he is instinctively just drinking more water after getting the wave in the morning and his behavior is better. So I'd like switch the pattern. I'm going to just put the two-year-old on it in the morning too. <laughs> to maybe calm her down as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do what you got to. <laughs> That's awesome. There you go. That's why I do it four times a day. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah, calm down. Calm down. Okay. Uh, any other questions or comments? No, I think we're good, Dan. Okay. I think we are too. 
All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. We will do this again in two weeks. We don't know the exact time and date because we try to do them every two weeks. But, you know, Dr. Myers, thank you so much. She's traveling. She's working different shifts. So this is going to vary during, you know, all of this going on. But, you know, follow us at Magnaway PMF um, on Facebook and Instagram. And then also MagnawayPMF.com to see when the next um, wellness webinar will be. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Dr. Amanda, thank you. Yes. Bye, you guys. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye.